I'm really thrilled to have Rana here this morning. The last time we met, we were talking about her exit from Affectiva, and she was so passionate about what was involved in Affectiva that it was actually just as emotional for her to be moving on. And I said to her, you know what, that's a great opportunity for you to share with founders what it is to go through the journey of building a business mm -hmm. and then selling it. And others would love to learn from that. So here we are. Here we are. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to have this conversation. It's a pleasure. So let's talk about what you went through. It's obviously a very big deal to build a business like Affectiva in the first place. And we should give people a couple of minutes on what Affectiva was. Mm -hmm. So I'll let you do that. And then let's talk about how did you get into the process where you ended up selling it? All right, so I'll start with the beginning of our journey. I have a background in machine learning and computer vision. Built the very first ever emotionally intelligent system, if you like, at Cambridge University, and then came to MIT as a postdoc, exploring the applications of artificial emotional intelligence. So my hypothesis is AI is becoming mainstream. Yeah. It's taking on roles traditionally done by humans. But a lot of the emphasis of AI is on the IQ of the AI, the cognitive intelligence. Yeah. And if you look at human intelligence, your IQ matters, but your EQ, your emotional and social intelligence matters just the same. And so I've been on this mission to bring empathy and emotional intelligence into our machines. And at MIT, we were exploring that in a number of research projects, and it quickly became clear that there is a huge commercial opportunity. Yeah. Um, and so we spun out of uh, MIT Media Lab in 2009, started Affectiva. I co-founded it with this MIT professor, Rosalind Picard. Yeah, she's amazing. She is amazing. She's my role model and mentor and a partner in crime in, in this journey. So she stayed at MIT. I gradually left MIT and, and focused on the company. And it's been this 11-year journey of humanizing technology. We've brought a number of products to market, and I'm sure we're going to we'll get, into those. get yeah. into those. But I think what's been really amazing about this is we brought to the world this idea of emotion AI. It's a recognized tech category today with a lot of players in the field, and it's only the beginning, in my opinion. So I'm really proud of that, but it was definitely an emotional roller coaster. So <laughs> I'm sure it was. And, and you know, as I heard the story, and of course I saw it unfolding, mm -hmm. I was blown away by the fact that you were willing to steward what is, in effect, a completely new field at the, at the time. And frankly, it's so important because obviously you can't have a computer actually understand what we are thinking as humans without including EQ as such a fundamental piece of technology. Exactly. So, and I fundamentally believe that at some point in the future, this is going to become the de facto human machine interface. So yeah, we're already yeah. seeing it with voice. Yeah. And the next evolution is going to be perception. Yeah. And so your Alexa ought to have ears and eyes, yeah. obviously a lot of privacy questions. But yeah, I think it's going to become ubiquitous. So I'm excited to be at the forefront of painting a vision of what that world could look like. And so what led to you saying, okay, gosh, I've done this, and I now need to feel like this is going to be better off in somebody else's hands. And how did that come about? Yeah, so we've raised in total $53 million of strategic and venture funding over the last, you know, 11, 12 years. And we were at the point, just when the pandemic hit, we were actually just about to go out and raise an additional round of funding. So our last round of funding was in 2018. It was uh, led by an automotive tier one supplier because that was the kind of industry we were really hunkered down and focused on. Yeah. So they led the round. It was a $26 million round. And essentially, we were now ready to go out and raise uh, another round of funding. And the pandemic hit. And it was becoming clear that this was going to take longer. The board was going to bridge us. And I don't know. I woke up one fall day in October and, and I took a step back and I said, we are going this alone. Would it make sense 
to partner. Initially, I was thinking like a deep strategic partner, one of the companies in our ecosystem. And thankfully, I had made a point over the, the last you know number of years to just get to know our competitors. And so I had a good relationship with a lot of them. Yeah. And I reached out to a couple of them and said, hey, want to chat? <laughs> yeah. And one of them, SmartEye, the yeah. CEO, really saw the opportunity. We had met at the previous CES. Yeah. And we left CES saying, okay, we're on a path to compete, but we're also like complementary in many ways. Yeah. They've been around for 20 years. We were the newer kids on the block. Yeah. Um, more on the machine learning AI front. So we had left CES saying, okay, let's connect. And then mm -hmm. the pandemic hit and we didn't. We connected with him in October and we started talking. And within a few months, he said, hey, are you open to an acquisition? And I was like, okay, let's get talking. Over the past 10 years, there were many opportunities to exit and sure. I was just not open to it. But with this particular moment in time, I felt it was the right thing to do for the company. Instead of being on a path to compete, why not like band forces, join forces and, and get there faster and in a more efficient way. And so that started the, the no, journey. Let me challenge you on that because I'd say that this is an example of something that's very difficult for entrepreneurs to figure out. You had a very broad, versatile technology that could have been used for many things. In fact, I, I remember when you went and put it out there to try to get the initial feedback, you've got lots of people in lots of different fields who are really interested in it. So at the, on the one hand, you obviously have cut off what would be that broad set of potential uses mm -hmm. for the product. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, the great learning for many entrepreneurs is you really need to build on success rather than cut back on failure. And usually that means focusing and yes. really figuring out what is the first killer application that can make this work. So tell me about SmartEye and how you think they'll be as a place to grow your business. Yeah, so let's take a step back because you're absolutely right. The thing that has been the most exciting, but also the most challenging about this whole Affectiva journey yeah. is that this technology has broad applicability across multiple industries. Literally, we can sit here and brainstorm about how this applies to retail, media yeah. analytics, automotive, yeah. social robotics, mental health, online learning, video conferencing. And for a number of years, we took the platform approach. We had SDKs yeah. out there, we ported them to all of the platforms you can think of, and we essentially said, SDKs there, you can download it if you meet a number of criteria. Yeah. And in fact, we made it free for companies that were pre-revenue, and then for bigger companies, we would charge a, a royalty fee. Yeah. And we had people all over the place using this. Right. But we quickly realized that the core technology only gets you 70% of the way. It doesn't really solve any person's problem. Yeah. But it was interesting because it allowed us to see where the critical mass applications of this technology. That's how we landed on automotive because we started yeah. to see all of these big automotive companies getting access to our SDK and trying to shoehorn it into yeah. a car use case. I think in retrospect, um, the technology was not ready for a platform play because again, it didn't take you, if you were using our SDK, you still had to invest a lot of effort. You had to have your own data science team and you had to have domain expertise to take that core technology and make it work for your use case. It's, it's not like Twilio where you can just plug in an API and it just works. It right. was not right. like that. And so the key learning was, one key learning was, yeah, we were not ready for a platform play for sure. It was not scalable. So in 2016, we took a step back and we evaluated all of these markets for strategic fit, market readiness, yep. and made the decision to focus on automotive, which was a departure. It was actually very painful for me as a founder. I bet. Because I now had to say no to all of these 
in yeah, boundary you quests. You had to pick from your children and decide right. which one right. was going to get to go to college. Absolutely. And uh, Harvard Business School wrote a case study about this because it's the dilemma, right? Do you go after a platform play or do you focus on a one industry? And the, the other interesting thing, too, is I always had this vision. Roz and I actually had always this vision that we were going to be like an IBM. We we're going to have multiple business units, one in retail, one in social robotics, one right, mental health. Right. And actually, in retrospect, the technology is different. Who you're selling to is different. Yeah. And so I've now made peace with the, with the fact that, you know what, smart eyes focus on the automotive industry, let's totally crush that. And there's probably going to be other companies yeah. that are going to take this core idea, core concept of emotion AI and apply it to different industries. So now let's go back to the emotional side of this, because this is, after all, what you were trying to teach, teach computers. So now let's <laughs> make sure it comes out for people as well. Emotionally, what was it like for you at the moment that you went, okay... I've got to make that decision. What am I going to let go and how am I going to partner? It was very emotional. There there was, and, and it still is, I actually think it almost feels like it was a traumatic experience. Like I had underestimated <clears throat> the amount of energy mm -hmm. that went into this whole year long process of making this happen. A lot of it involved building trust mm -hmm. with SmartEye CEO and the SmartEye team early on. And we had to do that remotely because it was during the pandemic. I remember one time, Martin, the CEO of SmartEye, said, listen, I'm very excited about this. We're going to do it. Um, but I have to sit right in front of you, across the table from you, and look you in the eye. And I was like, Martin, we've been FaceTiming for the last month every day. Just look me in the eye through Zoom. So there's definitely an element of trust and, and just being very open. Again, early on, I, I was very clear that this is outside of my... I, I remember telling you, you're evoking all of the mama bear feelings. Because <laughs> this is my baby and... Yeah. It's my team. I care deeply about all of this. And, and he actually said, you're evoking the papa bear feelings in me as well. And so That's that great. became our kind of our, our joke. But yeah, you have feelings of guilt. It's yeah. almost like you're giving up on your team and, right. and your vision. But you also want to be pragmatic. And yeah, so it's a lot of emotions. Yeah, very, very tough. Yeah. When did the moment come where you went, okay, I know I'm doing the right thing? I, I remember there was one time in the winter and we had lined up VC conversations, but also competitive offers. And I sat there and I played it out. I was like, okay, here's an opportunity where we can take this technology with this team to the next level or bring in additional capital and almost reset the clock. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and have all the same risks, be competing with all these guys who have been doing this for years. And I just sat there and I, and I, I knew it was the right thing to do. And I, I remember talking to a few people I trust and they validated my thinking and, and also <laughs> almost like therapeutically coached me through. Yeah, it's, the, that's what it feels yeah, like. Yeah. And, and let me double click on that because I think most entrepreneurs would have no clue what those feelings are and what some of the questions were that you were asking yourself. So, so what was going on? What did you want people to validate? I, first of all, I wanted to be, I didn't want to be the founder who's just attached to their vision and, 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 and would never sell. I didn't want to be that person. So I wanted to first almost take a very pragmatic approach. Okay, what would the world look like if we brought in additional capital? We had a pretty complex cap table at the time, so it would have probably been a recap. Yeah. And so that had its complexities, right? So I thought through that. And then I also thought about, okay, what would it mean if we partnered or we did this joining of forces with 
SmartEye or any other company and what that would look like. So first, just literally simulating it, like yeah. almost yeah. like a simulation game. Theory. Game theory, totally. Yeah. And then I thought, of, and then I took off my Affectiva hat and I put the Rana hat on because right. I think that's important too. Very important. That's what I'm curious about. Yeah, I have two kids. I'm a single mom. Yeah, I've been doing this for 11 years. People don't talk about that, but my entire financial wellness is yeah. tied to this one company and i felt like it would be a good opportunity to have some liquidity yeah. honestly that was a consideration my daughter just started college so a lot of considerations around what i want to do yeah. um next and i just had at that point in time i had a lot of interests and i still do and i yeah. wanted to explore there's an opportunity cost so you think about all of the different stakeholders and it just felt like the right time and now when you look back on it, do you feel like, okay, great, this was awesome. I've really made the right decision. I feel good about this. And in what cases have you looked at it and said, well, that was unexpectedly great. Okay, so let's start with, uh, I have a dual talk track and I'm gonna be just very open and very vulnerable and honest about this. I almost have this dual talk track in my brain. Yeah. So I'll start with a positive one. <laughs> okay, you can do that. <laughs> So the positive one is I'm very proud of this journey. We took a seed of an idea back at MIT and turned it into a thing. There are investors who focus on emotion AI. There are companies who build emotion AI applications. I also feel like we've been really like sticklers for doing it right. Yeah. And we're known in the industry for valuing people's privacy and doing it ethically and I think we've raised the bar for the yeah, industry. Yeah, and you set those values very early on, I remember. Right, like very early on we've stuck with it and we expanded it beyond the scope of just Affectiva to really leading the industry. We've organized what we call the Emotion AI Summit. We did it a few years in a row. We stopped during the pandemic. But we brought together the ecosystem players, yeah. our partners, our competitors, ethicists, yeah. to envision what this will look like. Right. So I'm proud of that. And I look at our team and, and again, we have people who started as fresh out of school and now they run entire teams and they've developed personally and professionally. I personally, I think that's the one thing I'm most proud of, the team we've built. That's great. And even if some of them have moved on, they've just moved on to amazing opportunities. Yeah. Um, as I'm an immigrant, I grew up in the Middle East, Egyptian originally, and we have a lot of immigrants on our team and just yeah. seeing how they've made um, the U.S their home, um, built families. I'm very proud of that too. I'm also proud of our strong core values and our core values weren't just marketing fluff. We actually used them to drive business strategy. Yeah. So we made decisions on which industries to take on and which industries to say no to like surveillance and security based on our core values. And I would do that again. I feel like our core values acted as our North Star multiple times throughout our journey. And yeah, I would do that again. That's excellent. By the way, that speaks to something that is so relevant for early stage founders, which is getting that culture, because it's the one thing that should stay very consistent. And yeah. if it does, to your point, it becomes a North Star. And I, yeah, and I absolutely, I would definitely, and even with my role as deputy CEO at SmartEye, it's something I'm very focused on. What are these core values? And how does it translate into culture and how we work together as a team, but then how we also work with the outside world, with our partners and customers, etc. So a lot of things to be, the technology we've built, again, like commitment to accuracy and doing it right and diversity of our data and <coughs> mitigating bias. Super proud. That's great. <laughs> Two thumbs up is what I'm saying. Two thumbs up, yeah. yeah. Okay, so that's one track. The other, perhaps not so positive track is I feel like I'm an epic failure. 
Mm. We've raised over a period of 11 years, we've raised $53 million of funding. Yeah. We exited just over $75 million. So if you do the math and if you're in, if, if you're in the, if you're not in the know, I've gotten, I've literally gotten text messages from friends of mine who are like, oh my God, you made $75 million. No, that's not how it works. <laughs> that's not how it works. So if you do the math, you'll know that all of our investors got their money back, but yeah. this was not a home run by any stretch of the imagination. And I feel very strongly that I was responsible for this money I took from our investors. And so it, on the one hand, I'm proud. I'm very excited about what we're doing at SmartEye and I'm committed to growing that company and, and our position in the automotive industry and beyond. But at the same time, as a founder, I feel like I let a lot of people down. I'm going through an identity crisis. My, yeah, my, yeah. my identity was so wrapped in Affectiva and now that I'm transitioning to SmartEye, it's tough. Yeah. I think it's okay to talk about that. It's okay to have both emotions and they don't need to reconcile with each other. So let's talk about that. So yeah. I'll start with the good side. It is impressive what you've done. And also 11 years is nothing. We'll look back in 20, 30, 40 years time and we'll go look at the industry and how it's had to adapt to include emotional AI. It's gonna be so fun. I don't know if you've been watching all the latest sci-fi things, whether you're <laughs> watching Dune or you're watching Foundation right. or whatever it is, but every future forward thinking movie or show, whatever, it has the same observation, which is that we need to interact in a very much more human way. Right. And we're not sitting there with keyboards and mice. Exactly. So exactly. You know, things are going to change. They already are. Touch has changed a lot. But right. in the future, once we can recognize what people are actually seeing and thinking and doing from an emotional standpoint, imagine what the world will evolve to. It'll be strategically. So I think this is incredibly exciting and you should feel very proud of it. You've been a fabulous steward for it. The personal side, actually really feel like you've got an amazing opportunity here to not only say, hey, I had this emotion of feeling like I'm an epic failure, <laughs> but I don't believe in that word. I'm a big believer that there's only learning. Yes. And yes. so let's give you a chance to learn from it, which by the way, you're already doing. Mm -hmm. You're sharing it here, you're talking about what's involved in it and how do you, for example, take it and move forward with it and use it as building block, etc. That's fabulous. You are effectively becoming the next generation of entrepreneur. Yeah, thank you. I, I appreciate that thinking because one thing I have learned through my time at MIT is that we never call anything a failure because you prototype something, it yeah. doesn't quite work, you iterate your shift. And so how you move forward from here is going to be, I think, a good example of what people can learn from. Yeah, and I think part of it, you and I talked about this, is just acknowledging that and not shying away from it. Yeah, holding your head high to say, look, I went through this experience and yeah. look where I am now and I'm able to move forward with a stronger basis yeah. for the next set of things I do. Yeah, especially as I, I, I am committed to paying it forward and supporting founders who are earlier in their journey. And I always tell people I'm just one data point, but yeah. there's definitely a lot of key learnings that I can share. And in that regard, reflect on that journey and say, what would you do differently? knowing what you know now. So I think the number one learning is back to this idea that we had a really cool technology, <clears throat> but perhaps the market was not ready. We did not find the use case where it was a must have as opposed to a nice to have. Yeah, yeah. May I, may I go yes, one step further? Yes. Because I think it's a massive learning. Every time I'm at Harvard trying to give people that insight to what is the biggest reason entrepreneurs fail, they all think it's something financial or it's none of that. Mm -hmm. It's can you define a problem that is painful enough and worthy enough 
to solve that people will reward you. And when you do that, you will find a path to building a business. It takes time and you might go through five iterations of your business model, but if it's really painful and it's really a problem that has to be solved, you must have words, it's a big deal. And there's an acid test, which is easy to put it up front. And that is what couldn't you do without mm -hmm. Affectiva? Yeah, and I think the place where we're most successful, which is understanding kind of people's emotional responses to content, because that ties to how you make decisions about products and virality, yeah, et cetera. Yeah. That's where we're most successful and that you couldn't do with a survey. Bingo. Yeah. And so carry on, because you obviously realized this. And looking back, how would you change knowing what you know now? Okay, so then, so find a place where this is must have. And then I think the second mistake we made is we never owned the end customer. So, right. so I'll give you an example. So, and it's very interesting because we did that in our initial kind of focus area, which was media analytics. And we did that all over again in automotive. Yeah. We decided instead of going directly to Coca-Cola yeah. with a solution to test Coca-Cola ads or d going directly to Netflix with a solution to test their TV series, yeah. we decided to partner with market research firms. And yeah. in fact, we got a sizable strategic investment from WPP. Yeah. It was great because within six months, we were deployed in 90 countries around the world. Yeah. Um, so we got immediate access to Fortune 500 companies once we integrated with WPP's advertising platform. But we never had direct access yeah. to these Fortune 500 companies. Yeah. And so we know how they use our technology right. and how they use, how they draw insights from our yeah. technology, but we don't really know. Yeah. And, and we're doing it this, it's, we're doing it all over again, interestingly, in the automotive space where we're a tier two supplier. So we yeah. provide our technology to a tier one and yep. the tier one sells it to the Toyotas yep. and the BMWs of the world. I think in both- and Even yeah. then, by the way, they're one step removed too because only until the drivers or the consumers of their cars tell you, do, do you really learn? Yes, exactly. We did explore a direct to consumer um, solution, but we, I, I think we were doing it wrong. So I, I still think there's a direct to consumer application here, but we weren't, we weren't the right team, I think, to take it forward. Well, may I draw out an yeah. insight because again, yeah. this is very interesting. In the earliest stages of early markets, the further you are away from the pain of the person who actually needs to solve this problem, mm -hmm. the less likely you are to really solve it. Okay, I love this. I almost want to type it and underline it. <laughs> yeah. And it's so hard because mm -hmm. of course, what you said was really valuable, which is you found somebody who is a tremendous leverage for you, WPP, to mm -hmm. get you into all these different countries right. with all these different Fortune 500s. But in the end, those were only a touch point and not the consumer Correct. Of, of what was obviously your solution. So right. it's very, very hard. Yeah. Yeah. And if I think if we, if I do this all over again, I would, I would consider doing a, a kind of a DIY Qualtrics-like yeah. solution where you can go upload your content. We give you a simplified dashboard. Yeah. And it would have taken a lot longer, probably, but I think we would have been able to expand and build off of it easier. Yeah, makes perfect sense. And by the way, it's a real challenge for entrepreneurs because in many instances, building the whole solution that touches all the way to the end consumer is very painful, slow, and sometimes has many missing pieces. So your piece is only a part of the whole product, as we call it. 
And exactly. so figuring out how, what are all those other pieces, putting them together and figuring out how to make it happen and then measuring it all the way through, it's very tricky. But the good news is, once you do it, it'll also help you figure out, well, okay, so who is my competitor? Who is my mm -hmm. partner? Who should I compete with? It is very interesting because we are part of this solution. And as a result, it's very hard for us to say, yeah, when we see this type of emotional response, it ties directly to sales effectiveness or virality yeah, yeah. because we don't have yeah. all of the pieces. Because it also, it's very funny because if you look at the TAM for some of these markets, they're huge, but if you're only a piece of the solution, that's, that's right. not your TAM. So you have to, and obviously we learned that over time to be yeah. more sophisticated about how we look at the industry. We also, in, in the debate on whether you take venture funding or strategic funding, I think there's pros and cons of each. And I ended yeah. up with a mixed kind of investor base where we had some strategics and some venture and very different agendas and different time scales. Too. Time scales. Yeah. Um, so we ended up with um, our cap table had WPP and Aptive. So these were strategic investors. Yeah. Awesome because they ended up partnering with us very closely. Yeah. But they had a lot of leverage. And in one case, WPP has an exclusive relationship with us. So we're not allowed to you know, play with the other big player in the market. And with Aptiv, we were adamant that we don't have any exclusivity, but there's perceived exclusivity right yep, in the market yep, yep. when you have them as, as investors on the cap table. They're less sensitive to valuation, of course, versus the strategic yeah, agenda. Because that's not what they care about. But they were a very strong voice when we were going through the exit discussions because yep. they want to make sure that their product still continues to work. And then the traditional VCs, on the other hand, yeah, just a very different way to look at the business. And yeah, very different. And again, just to draw it out, because I'm hearing something that I know is very painful for entrepreneurs sometimes. People will offer you money because they've got a very clear agenda for their reasons. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. But you just have to make sure you're really in sync with them and that they get your longer term vision. They're not going to get out of sync right. and start pulling in one direction or another, which is why I always say you want at least two VCs, even early on who can balance out your agenda and not get their particular timing in their fund or whatever right. it is they're trying to prove and let that get ahead of you. Yeah. And the strategic agenda, by the way, is we started talking about what do people care about. Timing is very key. Right. So strategic agendas can sometimes be much longer. They literally, you know, can be decades. So that's fine. Yeah. But it's not if you've got a, a VC who's trying to prove their fund's success exactly. in two or three years time. Exactly. So that's where things can get tough. And I think as a founder, I, I'm, a, I'm a first time founder, I didn't know any of this. I yeah. wish that somebody would have given me a crash course on, on, yeah. on all yeah. of this early on, because I think that would have been really helpful. Yeah. Let's, interestingly enough, just to put a plug in for it, why we do Startup Secrets and why this interview, mm -hmm. for example, is so important is because we want people to know what if I had known right. and how should I have thought about this and what are some of the frameworks? I, th I think being open about all of this, ho hopefully somebody's listening to this and it answers a key question or at least it helps them frame how to ask questions. Uh, one last quick question. If you didn't think about selling, if you'd never had that opportunity, nobody was interested and you'd had to face the, wow. I haven't got where I wanted to go and I haven't got capital raise and I haven't found a buyer, what would you have done? We talked about there were two scenarios, raising additional capital yeah, and yeah. exiting. Yeah. There's a third scenario, which is the worst case scenario, which is running out of runway, right? Just yeah. running out of money. And I played that out too. And of course, initially I thought of this as the epic failure of all, right? And But I actually, like, when I thought about it, I was like, even if we go down, even if that is the 
um, outcome. Yeah. I've learned a lot. I'll take a lot of these learnings to what's next. And I thought about our team and I was like, the team's going to be fine. We're all going to be just fine. So I, I think in a way, mapping out the space of all possible scenarios really helped. Sometimes knowing what the worst possible thing that could happen is and looking at really studying it is tremendously important. Yeah. It gives you the freedom to then say, okay, good. Well, I could do that, but then what else could I do? Exactly. Yeah. Excellent.